Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined in the line later today by the one, the only, Dr. Stuart McGill. Now, before we get into this week's show, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was. And my friend, I'm going to keep this a little bit shorter than usual because I'll be honest, I am freaking tired. It was quite the weekend. I spent 18 hours over the course of two days recording and basically getting this complete coach certification ready to go. You know, when I started laying all this out, I think we ended up with about 370 PowerPoint slides. We demoed 100 plus different exercise videos, and some of those were like sequences and progressions of different exercises. So who knows, 140, 150 exercises. So needless to say, it was quite the weekend. I'm still trying to play catch up from it and try and recuperate a little bit from it. But with that being said, I am very excited to know that the video shoot is past me. I am going to chill for a couple days and then I got to start on the next phase of the project, which is all of the back end work, you know, getting the quizzes ready, getting all the bonus materials ready, creating the bonus templates and all the good stuff that goes into launching a new product. But no complaints here. Very excited that it's done. And really briefly, I want to give a couple shout outs to people that helped me with this. So even if you never buy the product, I want you to know there's a couple people that were super influential in this process. Number one, Pat Rigsby, thank you for pushing me to get this thing done, for not letting me continue to rest on my laurels. So thank you for helping me at least get the video shot. And next phase, we'll be getting the product out the door. My girl, Catherine Volker, the original K-Dog, if you've ever seen me give my R7 talk, created all of the PowerPoints and they look absolutely amazing. So I appreciate her help there. Christy Cox, former iFast intern, did some amazing anatomy drawings to really help bring some of the anatomy module to life. So thank you, Christy. My guy, Paul Rutan, for all of his ninja video skills. So if you've ever seen one of my videos on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, that is Paul's work and he shot all of this for me. So huge, huge shout out to him. My guy, Eric Huddleston, current IFAST coach, was an absolute beast because <laughs> I think we demoed exercises for probably four and a half hours straight. And I kept offering, I'm, I'm like, hey guy, you know, I'll take some of these He's just like, no, he's like, I got it. So thank you, E, for your help. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't thank Bill Hartman for all of his mentorship, all of his guidance over the years. I would not be the coach or the trainer that I am today without him. And I can't say enough good things about him. I continue to learn from him every single day. And I feel so lucky to be in business with him and to be able to use him as a resource. So couple things about the product real quick, and I'm not trying to make this a massive product plug, but a lot of people have asked, how is this different from physical prep? Well, number one, there's more insights into the program design. You're going to have R7, but it's really fleshed out. There's big sections on how you write a strength training program. There's big sections on you know how you start to program for conditioning. So we got more insights into program design. We've got more program design examples, and I'm going to have a ton of templates in the final product as well that you can plug and play or that you can modify and basically swipe and deploy for clients and athletes. Obviously, I want you to put your own spin on it, but it'll get you started. And we all know it's far easier to edit something that's already there than to start with something that is fresh and brand new. There's going to be an entire section on coaching. So if you went through physical prep, there is, you know, talk of coaching at the very start of day two. But I've got, I think, three or four entire modules on coaching, on building rapport, on how to run a great session. So some really unique stuff that I've added in there. One other thing that I didn't like about physical prep was just, you know, just it's really hard to shoot really well in that environment, in a live environment, because there's always people standing in the way and there's a lot of questions. And I wanted time to just be able to, in a really controlled environment, shoot a ton of exercises a ton of progressions and regressions so you can see how all these different exercises are supposed to look. So the final product is due out sometime in late August or early September. I promise it is going to be lights out. I've told you before, I'm going to say it again. I want this to be the best strength and conditioning I slash personal training product on the market today. And I think if I can pull the rest of it together the way that I want, 
it can get there. So that is that new video for this week on the Nordic hamstring. Now, if you are a strength and conditioning coach, especially if you work with soccer players or athletes, maybe football players that are prone to hamstring pulls, you're probably familiar with the Nordic hamstring, but it's one of my favorite exercises, but I don't like how a lot of people coach it or maybe how certain athletes execute it. So it looks really cool when you see a guy or a gal take their nose all the way to the floor and then come back up. But when you look at that athlete, a lot of times they're in a massive anterior pelvic tilt, a massive lumbar lordosis, and they're just like crushing their lower back. So even though it looks cool, I don't think that's the most efficacious way to coach it. So in this week's video, I'm going to break down how we coach the Nordic hamstring. And if you've never done it this way, I would ask you to try it. I think it's going to feel totally different. One other piece I wanted to mention is the podcast. Man, the last couple months we have been on the up and up. It's been a really, really good two, three months here. And this past month, June, was actually our best month for all of 2019. So thank you so much for your support. You know I love and appreciate you. And I'm going to cut it there because once you get in and once you listen to this this episode with Dr. McGill, I think you are going to be just really buzzing because it's such a great discussion. We have such great back and forth. And Stu is a guy that I have looked up to, quite honestly, since I got into this industry. 2001 is the first time I read his name in a paper. 2003, he changed the way that I was you know, basically treating my patients in the rehabilitation clinic, changed the way I started training my own core and that of my clients and athletes. So it's an amazing show. Let's take a quick break and then we'll jump right in. This episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. For many years, I simply disregarded the age-old advice of getting liquid protein in either during or after workouts. Part of this was due to the fact that most had so much crap in them, I didn't want to put them in my body, and others might have been high quality, but tasted absolutely disgusting. However, if you're looking for a protein that's not only high quality, but also tastes amazing, you need to check out Momentus. I've been using Momentus for several months now, and I can tell you it's hands down the best tasting protein I've ever had. But it's not just me. I have numerous elite level athletes who are very picky with their protein powders, and every one of them raves about how great Momentus protein shakes taste. And while the taste is amazing, the best part about Momentus is that they're incredibly transparent with what goes into their product. You never have to worry about a tainted or dirty supplement as all of their products are NSF and Informed Sports certified. If you'd like to try Momentus out for yourself, head over to livemomentous.com forward slash Robertson and use the code Robertson20 to save 20% off your first order. Or if you want to try before you buy, get a free three-pack sample sent to your house by using the Robertson sample code at checkout. Regardless of which option you choose, I guarantee Once you try Momentous Protein Shakes, you'll never go back to anything else. Dr. Stuart McGill is often considered to be the world's foremost expert on spinal biomechanics. His patient list ranges from the general population to some of the world's most elite athletes, and his work has produced over 240 peer-reviewed journal papers and four books. In this show, Dr. McGill and I talk about a wide range of topics how spinal shapes impact and influence performance, the power of pulsing, the differences between elastic and strength athletes, and even what he describes as his, quote, biblical training week. Now, before I jump into the show, I want to say this. Dr. McGill is one of the most influential people in my career as a coach. His work absolutely shaped my path early on when I was just a young fledgling coach, and I'm constantly amazed at the depth of his knowledge. After doing close to 200 of these podcasts, I can tell you with absolutely zero reservation that this is definitely one of my all-time favorites. But enough from me. Let's talk to my man, Stuart McGill. Dr. McGill, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. I'm really excited to have you back on. Could you start by just telling us what you've been up to since the last time we've chatted? <laughs> well, good evening, Mike. First of all, it's it's good to see you. I don't know how many years it's been, but probably uh, a year few. and a half, two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, two years ago, I retired from the university officially. Now I just see patients when asked, and of course, they're they're back pained 
athletes and non-athletes, I suppose. And I put on the odd clinical course when asked, and I teach master courses on assessment of uh, low back pain here at home in Gravenhurst, Ontario. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know you did that. Yeah, I I love the, the slower life. I get to spend a bit more time out on the lakes working on boats and cabins and things like that. Yeah. Other hobbies beyond just repairing people's backs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, here's what I would love to start with because if anybody wants like the broad strokes of what you do and they want your approach, I'd reference them to go back to our first interview or definitely pick up one of your books because I think that gives a great foundation. But In the meantime, I have just like a bunch of random questions that I've kind of picked up over the years after hearing you talk and following your work for so long. And one thing that I've always been fascinated by, a while back you had talked about the various types of spines that you see and how maybe certain spines are better for certain sports than others. So would you mind elaborating on that just a little bit? Yeah, what, what what an interesting question and a way to pose it. Well, well, there's a bit of a story that goes with that, Mike. I love it. If we go back approximately 32 years, I was a young professor and I was asked to be an expert witness on a couple of murder cases. And you'd, you're probably wondering, oh, wow. what the heck yeah. would a court want testimony from a, a spine mechanics person? But nonetheless, I was paired up with a professor of forensic anthropology and you know you have to remember this is before computers and her job was to identify bodies based on skeletal features okay so there was no hair there was no skin and she would be able to say where what haplogroup this this spine and this hip architecture belonged to and that kind of thing and every time she brought up a feature from a group from a different part of the world, I would look at that and say, wow, that is a a fabulous advantage to express a specific type of athleticism, or it might create resilience to injury, or it might predispose the person to injury. And then all of a sudden, you pair that up with understanding how martial arts varies around the world and how different groups have taken advantage of their strengths and exploited the weaknesses of opponents and that kind of thing. But that's where the story starts in in the world of forensic anthropology. But to get specific now and try and answer your question, think of the shape of people's spinal discs. So let's just take a very simple variable like size. Is the person a heavy skeletoned person with a thick spine or are they a slender person with a thin spine. Well, you can imagine bending a thin willow branch back and forth. It doesn't create any stress. Right. But if you put a big load on that willow branch, you'd, you'd bend it and buckle it and break it quite quickly. Now let's take a thicker branch. You bend that branch once and it will fracture. So the thick branch doesn't like bending, but it can support tremendous compressive tension shear twist loads. So there's just an example using a branch of wood. Now consider spine. When you look at the great golfers, they typically have a slender spine. Simply, there's much less stress that accumulates in a slender spine, but you don't see those spines playing middle linebacker in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And The NFL spine, by definition, has to be a load-bearing spine, and generally it's much larger. You'll find it very difficult to find an offensive tackle or a middle linebacker who can drive a golf ball very far. So if it was strength and athleticism, the football players would win, but they don't. They're not the elastic, recoiled, torsional spring of a golfer. So there's the beginning from a, a size perspective, okay. the bigger the disc, the more limacon the shape. So if you were to take a bird's eye view, it would look like a lima bean, whereas mm-hmm. the typical golfer's spine is ovoid. So when that twists, again, it doesn't create what we call a stress riser. And the stress is equilibrated. And by the way, you can do many more sit-ups with a slender spine. Right. It's not so much of an issue. But if, again, you take that big heavy American footballer or uh, 
a large skeleton woman or man, they won't do well with sit-ups. You'll find that they'll actually accumulate posterior stresses in the disc much sooner. But having said that, if you look at a yogi's spine, who again, typically on an MRI, you don't need to tell me who's the yogi and who's the weight trainer, <laughs> right. because the discs are nice and plump. So when a a weightlifter or a powerlifter or someone who does weight training, when they bend forward and they have a little bit of a disc bulge, it's almost always a posterior disc bulge that grows or increases as you bend forward. So sitting at the computer and whatnot is, is what triggers their discomfort. But then you take the typical yogi master. They have adapted the collagen and the ground substance of the discs to be loose and pliable. They don't bear much compressive load, but when they move forward, the disc bulges reduce. They get disc bulges when they move into extension because the collagen is so loose it actually buckles on the compressive side. So there again, we see totally different pain patterns based on the architecture and form and function. The larger discs, interestingly enough, respond much better to McKenzie extension protocols for a posterior disc bulge that have an open fissure because they have more stress when you move into the extension to actually migrate some of the uh, nuclear gel. Hmm. And then you'll notice that orthopedic diseases follow different groups in the world. For example, you're well aware if you look at a spine from a bird's eye view, there's the disc and then the facet joints in behind. Mm -hmm. Some people have very open facet joints. So when they go into extension, the facet joints pack on one another like shingles on a roof. Mm -hmm. So when they go into extension, they create tremendous bending stress on the pars bone. However, you won't win the Olympics in gymnastics if you don't have open facets because you need the torsional right. uh, mobility of the spine. So the very feature that allowed you to be a competitive gymnast predisposed you to fracture of the pars, which leans to spondylolisthesis. <laughs> now, if I said to you, name your athletes that get spondylolisthesis, who's the first group you'd probably name? Yeah, like gymnasts. Gymnasts, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what gave them the athletic ability was also a predisposition to that orthopedic injury versus let's go back to the offensive tackle who doesn't twist very much. They have closed facets. So when they go through a flexion extension cycle, the facets just glide past one another. They get capsular stress, but they don't get that bone stress strain reversal stress that would lead to a spondy. So isn't it interesting? Now, that's just a start of the discussion on, right. on spines, but I could go to hips and, you know, we know why different types of power production in the squat, for example, come from the nation's that have the most dysplastic hips. So the highest rate of hip dysplasia in Caucasian Europe is in Poland. Yeah. Well, they have the shallowest hip sockets. That's what leads to hip dysplasia. And yet, a lot of great Olympic lifters and deep squatters come from Poland. And when you measure the power production in the squat, throughout the squat, the power production out of the hole in the bottom is ungodly. Mm. Now, you, you take the opposite in orthopedic disease which is FAI, which comes from having a very deep hip socket. Where's the highest rate of FAI in the, in the world? Well, I don't know exactly, but I do know in Europe. So let's travel yeah. across Europe now and, and go to the Celtic nations. And I know what the name Robertson is, but <laughs> I, I also know your, your hips a little bit. Cause I yeah. we did a hip exam years ago, didn't we? Yes. It just in, in one of the courses, but nonetheless, so, so it's, you're, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't, you don't follow the curse. Yeah. But, uh, so the, 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 the Celts, on average, and I'm not saying every pole has shallow hip sockets, nor does every Celt have deep hip sockets. I'm just talking about the average of the population. But sure. nonetheless, they have FAI because they have the most congenitally deepest hip sockets. Yep. But when you measure the power production out of the deep squat, it's not very good. Right. <laughs> Talk to Dan, John, and people right. like that about yep. it. And, uh, you know, we're all the same. We're all about the same age. We've all had hip replacement. We all did hip squats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you can spot the, the, the Celtic professors here. But anyway, 
but the power production is in the top half. And when you measure that type of hip doing, a, say, a deadlift or some kind of a pull from the floor, the power production out of the hole isn't very impressive. But as soon as that bar passes the knees, man, they hit second gear and yep. they don't fail in the top half and it lock out. Yep. So isn't it interesting how you can predict athletic performance, orthopedic disease, and some of these other variables that I've listed off? You know, I, I, I know we talked last time about what, what what's the McGill method, the McGill approach. Um, you know, when you look at medicine these days, there's been quite a revolution and trend towards what we call precision medicine. So think of where cancer was. Even the last time we spoke, you know, there was chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy. But now they, they match the dose to the gender, the genetic haplogroup, um, the exact type and phenotype of cancer cell and they're doing so much better yeah. by really matching the treatment in a precision way so i also am extending that now to our world of performance enhancement strength and conditioning getting rid of back pain the assessment of some of these much higher level variables and the level of mastery that, that some people are obtaining allow the not only precision medicine, but precision whatever it is that we do mm. in, in training and advising people. And uh, the results are coming along. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool where we're at. And just thinking about where I was 16 years ago when I first got introduced to your stuff, the massive shift and the massive just evolution of where we're at. And, and as far as our understanding, it's totally different. Yeah. yeah. So another set of concepts that I know you've discussed over the years are stiffness, relaxation, and impulse. So I'd love to hear you discuss just briefly how those are related and how they go about improving athletic performance. Because unfortunately, a lot of us, and hopefully not myself anymore, but so many of us for so long, we're just caught up on this idea of strength, more strength, more strength. And I love these concepts. Right. Okay. Well, that's going to have to start off with a bit of a story as well. I love so if it. you can just, just bear it. with me. Think of the great athletes that you've worked with in many different sports. Did they really test to be the strongest? And I would say the answer to that is no, unless they were a power lifter. So exactly. of course, strength, strength trumps in, in power lifting. But when you think of the other athletes, and you, you measure their athleticism, it's they were great strength pulsers. Of course, they had great situational IQ and fabulous movement patterns, but, but pulsing is what creates speed because here, here's the first foundational principle. When a muscle contracts, it creates force, agreed. Mm -hmm. It also creates stiffness, which stops movement. So, Again, in, in the UFC and in, in, in some of those fabulous athletes, I mean, I've measured some of the, the, the greatest strikers and, and some of the ones who aren't so great. The ones with the bigger muscles end up pushing their punches. They're slower because they use muscle. So muscle is big, high force, but it's also big, high stiffness, which mm -hmm. slows. So the ones who strike the hardest are the ones who create the pulse of strength to create enormous velocity and then they relax to allow the velocity to build as the closing distance velocity increases of the fist to the target or the foot mm -hmm. to the target etc and then when they hit the target their body turns to stone so you know in uh, uh, football for example I, you know you ask some of the old guys who, who did you hate to play against and a lot of them would say, oh, now I'm having a senior's moment. Who is that fellow who played for the uh, silver and, and, and black team out of – Howie uh, Long? The no, Raiders? No, no. It was Oakland Raiders. Yeah. But, uh, the uh, defensive back. And he wasn't a big guy, but they said when he hit you, you'd rather be hit by a car. Oh, because yeah. he had that magnificent ability to turn to his body to stone. Or in the NHL, you know, you get some yeah. of the old NHL guys and you say, who did you hate to play? Not because they were dirty players or anything like that. It's just they hurt when they hit you. And yeah. it was, you know, Scott Stevens, the, the, the great defenseman from out east. And then uh, guys like Messier, Mark Messier. Yeah. Not a big guy, but he turned his body to stone. So this is this idea of pulsing. Hmm. And it creates speed. It creates harder strikes. 
Then the next principle in all of this is our body is a mechanical linkage. So think of heavy equipment and a backhoe. In order for the backhoe to dig earth, you have to put down the stabilizers and mm. anchor the main body of the tractor to the ground. Otherwise, it'll get pulled around sure. as you pull earth. Now let's consider the 400-pound bench presser. Let's assume the, the the primary bench press muscle is pec major. Just let's assume that. Yeah, we sure. Do that, but whatever. <laughs> okay, so pec major is a uniarticular muscle crossing the front of the shoulder joint, a ball and socket joint. Well, consider distal to the ball and socket joint, pec major flexes the arm around and creates a wonderful push. So if you're pushing a weight off your off your, your body in a bench press or you're standing boxing on the offensive line, same thing, pec major. Remember, you can bench press 400 pounds. Mm -hmm. Now, don't we wish? But anyway, <laughs> now think of that same muscle proximal to the ball and socket joint. It connects the rib cage. So it's action there. It actually bends the rib cage towards the shoulder joint, which is an energy leak. That's an undesired movement. So all if I'm standing now, I can only press half my body weight when I'm standing. So my 400 pound bench press now goes out the window. However, I have 400 pound capacity in my pec major. Mm -hmm. So on, on distally, I get the arm flexion creating the push proximally my chest collapses towards my shoulder <laughs> so I, I i i can't do very much however if i stiffen proximally my torso i arrest the energy leakage of that muscle on the proximal side distally 100 percent of pec major is now dedicated to creating the distal push and athleticism so that's the next idea of this this idea of stiffness to create a pulse You've got to fire a cannon off concrete. You can't fire it out of a canoe. So now you need a proximal stiffness in the linkage. So if I wanted to wiggle my little finger as fast as I could, I had to stiffen my wrist. If I want to wiggle my wrist, I had to stiffen my elbow. And what's the mother of all proximity in the linkage? It's your core. Oh. And I, I hate that word, but yeah, we know what sure. we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. we can define that all day long. But anyway, it's between the ball and socket joints of the shoulders and the hips. So, you know, it's no coincidence we have this wonderful mobility and capability in the ball and socket joints, either end of the core that when it is stiffened, it now arrests those movements and directs the wonderful power developed across the shoulders and hips by, you know, the shoulder complex, gluteal muscles, psoas, hip flexors, you name it. But that gets expressed distally now. So this concept of stiffness, compliance, impulsing, it's all wound up into this expression of athleticism. And, you know, it's funny when I see, you know, some of our junior colleagues who just don't have the mastery yet coaching some things yes. that are performance <laughs> decreasing and, and <laughs> reducing of injury resilience and whatnot. But uh, anyway, there's a little bit of a start. I, I hope that now, introduces those notions. That, that was a fantastic answer. And I want to jump around a little bit because Obviously, a buzzword, we mentioned core, that's always been a buzzword, but another buzzword is, you know, return to play protocols, especially when it comes to sports and athletes. But one thing I don't hear talked about quite as much is, you know, return to life protocols for the general population. And I would just love to get your opinion on how maybe the rehab approach is different or it should be different for a lay person versus a high level athlete. Okay. Well, uh, let me take a stab at it and correct me if I'm getting too far off the beaten path wow. on this. Um, I, I think that, it, you know, a human is a human in the basic form. So I, I might not differentiate the two. Yeah. Bill Parisi has asked me to c come and do talks at the NFL Strength Coaches Association in the last couple of years. And, and in both of my lectures, a good portion of it was how to return a player from the NFL back to civilian life. So now, you know, detune the athleticism and get their health back yes. so that they, they live a good life. You know, they have to manage injuries. They've got to lose weight. They've got to change their diet, etc. What I'm talking about basically is changing habits. Now, hmm. let's take the average person or lay public member who has back pain. What's causing their back pain? 
Is it the movement habits that they have throughout the day? It may very well be in some people. Others, it is their training habits and their programming in the gym. Others, it's their job. Anyway, the the point of it is they too have the same challenge as the NFL player returning to civilian life in in terms of changing their habits. So, you know, this is what we do in, in a coaching sense. Rarely is it a single event that leads to a back injury. It's, it's much more common to be a cumulative stress because of a chronic pattern. And the, the, the stress accumulates and it simply outpaces the rate of repair. So in, in that story, I'm not seeing a heck of a lot of difference in concept between an athlete and, and, a, and a, 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 just to say, one of our more common clients. Yeah. Is, is that headed in the right direction for you? Absolutely. And that's something that I try and express to the people that come into our gym because we have such a broad swath of people that come in and everything from general population, they just want to move better and feel better up to high level performing athletes. And one of the things that we always try and explain to them is we want you to achieve your highest level of athleticism and whatever that means to you. But we're always going to match things based on where you're at movement capacity wise and where you're at with regards to intensity. And I think those are two things that are always going to differentiate an athlete from a gen pop person, right? Their, Their skill level and their movements and the intensity and the amount of force production or whatever you want to say. They just have more intensity than, say, a gen pop person does. But that doesn't mean that you're going to take a gen pop person and treat them wholly differently than you would an athlete. It's just kind of moving them back on the continuum a little bit. Mm, yeah, I, I, I think I recall these discussions that we've had before where, you know, how, how are we con- going to converge on what an optimal training program would be, mm-hmm. whether they're an athlete tapering down for competition or they're a stay-at-home mom now yes. with a couple of young kids who has all kinds of demands. H- how do you converge on, on an optimum for, for training? And, and I, maybe the listeners might appreciate how I would go about it, and I, yeah. I, I think I know you well enough that you, you'd probably be in the same, but you can comment on that. I, I ask them, what are the demands of your life? Now, whether that's competing in the UFC or it's picking up a, a one-year-old and changing their diapers, uh, you should be able to formalize the demands in terms of physicality on that person. And then simply assess the person. Are you able to meet those demands? Yeah. Or maybe you have demands that are aspirations. Are you able to meet those future aspirations? So you assess the person. Can they meet those demands? And then it's simple. After that, you train the difference. You train what they want to be able to do or need to be able to do but currently can't. And and that stops a lot of this craziness that's going on the Internet that I see, you know, why am I getting these person after person calling up with back pain. They had such unrealistic goals because someone on Facebook said, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom after training for three months. You should be able to deadlift your your, your body weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a second. Biological adaptation doesn't happen that way. And we've already <laughs> talked about different types of spines that we get from our parents. Yeah. Some people, that's just, just, just not right. So it prevents and mitigates against injury that come from just un- unrealistic goals. So yeah. it's a way, you know, survey the goals, figure out what they need, train the difference, and don't get too crazy. And you will have a more satisfying life, I would say, with, with less pain, at which I'm kind of starting to appreciate yeah. now in my yeah. mid-60s. <laughs> Can I admit something to you? I would love I, that. I, I have no pain. That's amazing. I, I have zero pain. I, you know, I used to have pain in my 30s and 40s, certainly my 20s when I would play sports and I would train far too much strength. But now I train a little bit more mobility. Do, do you want to hear about my biblical training week? That, uh, absolutely. Uh, okay. So there's seven days in a week. Two days a week, I 
put a bit more effort into strength training with a power thought. So mm-hmm. I still want a little bit of hip power. I, I want, sure. you know, if I stumble, I got to get my foot out in front of me to arrest the fall. Absolutely. And I still, you know, if I'm rolling with, with one of the big guns in jujitsu or something, I, I still want to have a little <laughs> bit of co- competitiveness yeah. left, you know. So two days a week, I, I, I focus and think about that. But two days a week, and, and you will probably love this, I focus much more on mobility, which I never did when I was a younger guy. You know, I'm starting to get a bit more of uh, head forward, thoracic flexion and kyphosis. And it just happens as you get a bit older. So I'll do a little bit of thoracic extension work. And, you know, I've had hip replacement. So I have I have to do a little bit of work on my hips and my sure. knees and whatnot and my hands. So that's two days a week a little bit of more thought on uh, mobility two days a week i do something else so you know yesterday i had a really good bike ride just Mm -hmm. enjoyed it in the winter i might go out for a ski or something but i don't want to ride a bike a long way today i i had enough (laughs) yesterday but today i adapt from that right you know and then one day a week usually sunday or actually in my life it's usually monday because on the weekends i'm ready to raise hell i don't want to rest (laughs) my rest day but then that's my day just to allow the adaptations to take place mike i have zero pain that's awesome I feel fabulous i love hearing that and i think that's such a great message because so many people assume that oh i'm getting older and i'm this is just part of it and i try and explain to people i mean i'm not i'm not your age yet but you know i'm almost 41 and man i remember when i was in my 20s my back would hurt for three days after i would bench press you know, because I would arch so hard to try and set up to get a bigger bench press. So it's just great to hear that you are feeling so good and that you've adapted your training to find a system that works for you. You know, people said, oh, you're too young to retire from the university. What you're doing, Mike, I just locked the door and I walked away. And, you know, I've never been back and I don't miss it. It's it's fabulous because when I started as I said, there were no computers. We used to write mail, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> physical mail, and, and students would come to office hours. In the last few years, they just email me and say, oh, can you explain? And I say, no, come to the bloody office. We're going to have some <laughs> office hours. <you> know? <laughs> but anyway, my point in all of that was I became a sitting computer operator. Yeah. My health was going to hell. Yeah. And here I was, supposedly a rehab specialist, and I was a computer operator. Something wasn't right with that. I had to get out of there. And all I'm saying is I have no pain. I get up in the morning. I take my dog for a walk. I have breakfast. I do a little bit of my, you know, work that I have to do, administer the things around here. And then I go out to the shop and I do physical things. And, you know, and then I might work with a patient or an athlete or whatnot. But boy, I'm so much more healthy now. Yeah, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. So here's something else that I'm interested in, because obviously I, I followed your work thinking back. I remember the first McGill article I referenced was in 2001. I was in my master's program and I remember citing you because I had to write a paper on core training. And then I got your book in 2003. So I followed you for a really long time. And one thing I'm not sure, and it might have passed me uh, passed me by in the years, but I don't remember you talking as much about a flexibility assessment. And I know in our last show, we talked a lot about your movement assessment, and squatting and lunging and watching people move. But is that part of your screen? Is there a flexibility element or is it more strictly movement based at this point? The answer is it depends Okay. simply because, by the way, I, I don't really perform screens. I do back pain assessment to to converge on on a precise mechanism. So, yeah. But again, let's take an example of a 75-year-old female, probably has a little osteoporosis or certainly some osteopenia. Would I do the same assessment on her as I would, you know, a young lad who's who's coming in and is competing and you name the sport? So the answer is no, obviously. Sure. So they're all very, very different assessments. So talking about spine flexibility, again, the answer is it depends. Right. So if, if I take a person and I've 
documented their injury and their pain mechanism to be a focal disc bulge with an open fissure through the collagen, which means it grows when they sit and tie their shoes, and it shrinks a little bit when they go for a walk. Then I would say, you know, there's not much margin for mobility there. If I'm going to get a load-bearing spine, once again, I'm going to have to dial back the spine mobility, focus on hip mobility and hip hinging and those kinds of things. Then the next person who comes in, and we did a study on belly dancers before I retired, which was a lot of fun. (laughs) They had marvelous mobility and control in their spine, but they had no strength. And Mm. that's just the way it is. When you have that much mobility or you, you really practice heavy yoga, you are giving up the ability to bear heavy load. You can't have it both ways. The adaptations in biology won't allow it. Right. So that would be another consideration on what I would assess. So what are gotcha. the ultimate demands and, and whether they're going to meet them or not? Obviously, the far end of the spectrum would be a power lifter. Mobility is a detriment. I need the stiffest person. We bind them up with neoprene wraps (laughs) on their knees. We stiffen their torso with lifting suits to make them as elastically stiff as we possibly can. Then uh, the next person walks in and they're an Olympic rower. So, okay. Now that's very, very interesting. I don't know if, you know, I'm going to brag about my wife. I love it. You you know, she was on our national team as a Mm -hmm. national rower in the 80s then retired and raised the kids and whatnot. She got back in a boat about six years ago. To make a long story short, she then became the Canadian champ, then the uh, American champ. She won the Worlds last year, so I can honestly say I sleep with the fastest woman over 50 years of age in the world. (laughs) Anyway, once we get past that, consider the rowers and how different rowing programs around the world have gone through eras. And and I've certainly consulted with them over the years. You know, there are some teams that focus very heavily on uh, deadlifting and and they row in a sea. They go up to the catch with a big flex spine and Mm -hmm. they grunt their way as they pull through the rowing cycle. And then the next rower is sitting taller in the boat. They slide up the slide into compression and then they start to unfold and extend the hips and knees and then they pulse. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, sitting tall, as the hips explode, the spine bends just a little bit and then it whips Mm -hmm. and it whips the boat. So that is a contrast between an elastic athlete being that sit up tall in the boat rower and really whip the boat versus the strength rowing athlete who does well training deadlifts and whatnot. So do you see one should be focused on training and tuning elastic storage and recovery of elastic energy, whereas the other one is a strength rower. So totally different techniques, totally different. And they do get different injuries, by the way. It's so Mm. interesting. I worked with one Olympic program and we really knocked back their incidence of back injury. And they were the strength deadlifting kind of uh, philosophy. And I got them to sit taller in the boat. But you can imagine sitting taller in the boat now as they go up the slides into compression, they're impinging their hips more. So now they're reporting more hip impingement. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, You you got to get it from somewhere and posture migrates stress. So a posture change, a change in training technique simply moves the risk from one part of the body to another. But there's a a little bit of a discussion on flexibility and and how even within a sport it can change based on the anatomy and athleticism and and the coach's preference yeah or uh you know you can't have three elastic if you have a crew of eight for example you can't have three elastic rowers and then five strength athletes the boat just doesn't hum or in and out of the water at different times and all the rest of it so you know and then age yeah. You know, boy, I'll tell you, the mobility in my body has changed. But, Mike, you're going to love this. And in, in the areas that matter, it's for the better. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. So I was going through materials because the last thing I want to do is ask you the same questions that either I asked you last time or that the hundred other people who have interviewed you have asked. So 
One thing that I found as I was going through these old materials of yours, you were interviewed and somebody said that nearly half of the people that you'd consulted for had been injured during a personal training session. So I've really got two questions here. Number one, is that really true? And number two, if you could give these trainers that are injuring people in the gym some advice for keeping their clients healthy, what would it be? Well, the answer is yes. That was a true statement. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. That's awful. Yeah, the things that I hear that these back injured people have been told to do, first of all in their training, and then in their rehab, I would say far more than half of them have either been caused or exacerbated by uh, by trainers. So what would I do about it? Now that that's a that's a thoughtful follow up to that. I would say first of all, know the training goals of the person and make sure they're realistic. Stop training the stay-at-home mom like a bloody Navy SEAL. <laughs> right. They're shortening their athletic careers, just, just leading them to people like me. So know the training goals and then have good tools in your toolbox to know what tool to pull out to reach that training goal. So if deadlifts are the only tool in your toolbox, I, I think we have a problem. A loaded carry, a sled push, simply getting a footballer to grunt and push a car back and forth in a parking lot teaches them foot athleticism, leg drive. Uh, you know, yeah. it's it, it, if if all they do in a football program is squat and deadlift, we have a problem. Yep. So have more tools in the toolbox and know which ones have the highest reward to risk ratio. And Love more it. is not better. Yeah. You're tuning a body, more strength upon more strength. You know, we, we did an experiment at the university, Mike, a couple of times. The one time I'm going to cite was with volleyball players. And the coach said to one of our graduate students, would you take my volleyball team and I want you, I want you to add vertical height. So, of course, a strength and conditioning guy is going to use a, a squat training dominant program to increase vertical jump in a, in a volleyball jumper. I mean, that's what sure. it is. We did the experiment twice, two different groups. We got exactly the same results. About half of the team added a couple of inches on their vertical jump. 10%, 15% made no difference. And 35% lost height off their vertical jump. Now you're wondering, they all did the same program. What the heck happened? Well, as it turned out, if you asked the players a question, and the players know this, it decided which membership in what group they were. Are you naturally quick or are you naturally strong? Now, most kids know that. Yes. So you can imagine now what group was ruined with squat training. Those who are naturally quick, that have that quick explosive neurology, and then you add strength, they jump higher. Mm -hmm. But if they're already strong and you add more strength, you added more stiffness. You slowed them down. And, you know, it's so fun to, to the, the, the great football programs in the U.S., some of them still haven't figured this out. The yep. kids coming out of high school have faster sprint times than when they leave the program <laughs> after four years because yep. they, they were strong kids and they added strength yep. versus it's it's more difficult to add neurological speed. I, I, I get that. Anyway, there's what I would. and And, of course, This will probably raise the ire of the younger listeners, but the older listeners are going to nod their heads in agreement, and that is to reach the level of mastery, stay off Facebook. Yes. Go and work with a master. And the masters don't have time to be on Facebook. They're out (laughs) being the master and learning how to be a better master. Right. So go work with a master. Serve your apprenticeship. Learn the craft. And you will not learn the craft from the marketers who are marketing on social media. Now, I do realize we're using the digital (laughs) world uh, for this right now. But anyway, there's, there's too many... People are um, mesmerized into thinking that they're really becoming masters listening to these kindergarten discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this next one is really for my own. I don't own. have many opinions, do I, Mike? Oh, I, I love it. I love it. I love the stories. I love the opinions. That's why I wanted to have you back on. So this, this one, though, is for my own personal edification more than anything else. So you've written three major books 
all of which I've read, all of which are fantastic. And I'm sure to some degree, they're kind of like children, right? Like you love them all, but I've got to ask, do you have a favorite book that you've written? No, they all came from different places. And like kids, they're all different. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a favorite. No, um, I, I, I actually have a, a one, a fourth one, Gift of Injury. I wrote it with Brian Carroll. Are you familiar with that one? Man. Yeah, I do. I have that one. Man, yeah, I thought so there that were four. The I thought there were three. No, well, there's low back disorders, disorders that I wrote for clinicians. So that yeah. one was easy for me to write. That was my world. That was yes. the science and educating docs. The second one was ultimate back fitness and performance. So I yes. wrote that for coaches yeah. and, you know, athletes and, and savvy lay people. And then I wrote yeah. back mechanic yes. for the lay okay. public. Now, that was the hardest book I ever wrote. It was the simplest at when it came out because it was consumable by the lay public. Yes. But for a guy like me to try and distill down what was still scientifically valid and minimal information for the lay public to, to use, but still make it consumable, that mm -hmm. was a very, very difficult book for me to write. And then Gift of Injury with yes, Brian Carroll. Right. That, that is the fourth. Yeah, written by a uh, an elite athlete. And I didn't know Brian could write, first of all. And secondly, we talked about it. It was really just going to be Brian's story and how he recovered his, you know, after massive back injury, he came back and squatted over 1,100 pounds. Wow. So it was going to be his story of how he did it and the training regimen and all the rest of it. But then you know, I would go down, he's from Jacksonville, Florida, I'd go down and I'd sit in his kitchen and we'd write and then we'd go out to the dock and fish and then we'd come <laughs> back and write a little bit more and then we'd have dinner. Anyway, we just had such a ball doing it. And then it turned into a strength manual. Hmm. So it just, it, we couldn't stop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've become, I, I hope he would say the same thing. I was going to say we've become fabulous friends. Well, that's from my perspective anyway. Yes, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, so that, that they were all so different and different processes and different purposes. Uh, I love it. I love it. And, and you're right. I mean, I remember because low back disorders was the first one I had. And it was so relevant for me because at that time I was working in a, in a chiropractic office doing rehab. And so it totally changed the way that I looked at, at spines and core training and everything else. So, all right. So I want to be respectful of your time. I realize you have a ton of stuff going on. So we'll do a very quick lightning round and then I will let you go. Okay. <laughs> These are the ones I fear. Oh, no, 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 no. These are going to be great. Number one, this is, I, I want to hear this. Number one, what's your favorite summer pastime in Canada? Well, uh, oh, I'm going to get arrested. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know the answer, and that is it depends. Yeah. So it depends on the day. I, I hear parents say, oh, you know, I, I don't like when my adult kids come around and all that. kind. Of, I love when my kids come home. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a day down at the dock just going for a swim, doing a bit of boating, having a, a beer or a sandwich or whatever it is yeah. on the dock. And they all have fabulous friends. I love their friends to death. So that is those, those are the favorite days. And, you know, my dog is around and, and my wife is here. Yeah. yeah. Those are just the, you can't beat those days, man. I am like, I think that might've endeared me even more to you. Cause that's exactly what I want. When my kids are older, I want them to come back and hang out and that would be so much fun to have those experiences with them. So that's awesome. Yeah, um, there's a couple of their friends who their friends come to our place for their birthdays. Oh. And I, I, I know those days and I look forward to them so much. And we just have an absolute ball. So uh, that's anyway, awesome. there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Number two, and you kind of already answered this, but, you know, what's the best and maybe the worst part about not teaching anymore? At least in, at least for the university. I know you still teach. Yeah, kind of I, I, I don't want to give people a wrong impression. But honestly, Mike, I don't miss the university. I, I, I the, the day I, I walked away, I just handed in my keys. And the professors came in and, and really ransacked the lab, so to speak. <laughs> so I didn't want any of it. I, I took a few personal textbooks that people had signed for me and that kind of thing. But you know, I had three walls covered with books, I said to the grad students, go in and help yourself. I honestly thought no one would ever 
be interested in me ever again. And boy, was I wrong. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just gave all that stuff away. And and I don't miss the teaching of the students and people. It sounds horrible, but I honestly, I don't. I, I just, I had to get away from the computer yeah. sitting there. And, and I just, you know, all right, it's great to tell stories and inspire a few young people, but I get to do that now on my terms anyway. Yes. So I love to see patients. The young athlete that I had today is a patient. You know, I, I, I had to be a pretty hard-nosed parent to her today. Hmm. She needed to hear a few things if she's going to be successful. She didn't like it. Right. But, you know, how, how, how do I teach that and and get her to consume the message without her hating me forever and, and that right. kind of thing? So, you know, I, I, I still get to, to teach. And then the next person, you just get so much joy because you've changed their life. They're yes. now out of back pain. So I don't need to teach students at the university anymore. I love it. I love it. Number three, and I'm sure the answer to this is going to be, it depends, but I've got to ask as well. <laughs> Do you, is, is there any one aspect of your career up to this point that you're most proud of or one thing that really sticks out to you? Yeah, Mike, this, I hope this doesn't sound awful, but I don't look back and I never, ever think about it. Really? I, I it, No, I, I just think about what I got to do today, what I have to prepare for tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. I, I never think about it. I, I, I just, I don't think about that stuff. Yeah. I love that it's outlook. And not, not on my radar whatsoever. And, and just so you know, I, you know, I got asked a little while ago, would I come and give a talk on, on choosing a career path? And I said, no, I am the worst example in the world of that. <laughs> I've, I've had zero career aspirations. I never had a plan. All I ever did was just keep going and try and respond to requests that people made of me. So I'm the world's worst example of planning all of this out. And, you know, I, I very easily could have been a plumber. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, so something tells me you would have been a pretty good plumber, though. Just, <laughs> I'm going to admit something to you. I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. Last but not least, I got to know if you're looking ahead, number four, what's next for Dr. Stuart McGill? What do you got on your radar? What are you excited about? No, nothing. No? Nothing. No, nothing. Not a thing, honestly. I've been everywhere I want to be. Uh, I'm going to say this live and it's not very politic, but I don't have a bucket list. Yeah. All, all I have to do, I mean, uh, I don't want to be righteous here, but I, I just want to keep improving myself and how I treat other people. And I screw up sometimes and that's all I have to do. I have zero things on the bucket list. Some people upset me and I just put them on the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. Okay. We, we got to stop there because it's not going to get any better than that. <laughs> Stu, you've been amazing to talk to, as always. I just genuinely enjoy catching up with you. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Well, I'm not on social media. Well, I am on social media, but honestly, my, my daughter does that, and I, I don't even know how to sign on. But we do have a website, backfitpro.com. Okay. And on BackFit Pro, we list the courses that we have going, some of my textbooks, and uh, oh, a little bit on getting and addressing back pain. Awesome. But yeah, that's it's pretty simple. That's awesome. Well, I will make sure I put that link in the show notes. And again, Stu, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was truly great. Oh, Mike, I always enjoy you. Thank you very much. And thanks for all you do. my friend. That does it for this week's show with Stu. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. And man, I just can't say enough good things about Dr. McGill. He's a guy that has had a massive influence on my career. I mean, I remember picking up his low back disorders book in 2003. I'm a struggling clinician. I'm working with people in back pain and it absolutely changed and shifted the way that I treated these people and I got such better results. So a guy I can't say enough good things about. And most importantly, normally I would ask you to do something for me at this point in time if you enjoyed the show. I'm not going to ask you to do anything for me. If you are a trainer or you're a coach 
and you see or deal with anybody that has back issues, go to Dr. McGill's website. Go to backfitpro.com. I'll put a link in the show notes and just start consuming his information. The guy has a book about it feels like everything, whether it's rehab, whether it's performance training, whether it's the story of him and you know Brian Carroll and how they kind of work together to rehab Brian's back. He is a wealth of knowledge and somebody that we should all be learning more from. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Truly hope you enjoyed this show and we will see you soon with our next episode. Take care.